Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy, sitting next to me is Floki, and sitting opposite me is Liam. How's it going, matey? Yeah, pretty splendid, mate. What about you? Yeah, I'm doing all right, mate. Cold and grey in England, as usual. Yes, persevering through all that bullshit. Other than that, everything's brand spanking. Everything's absolutely tip-top, tickety-boo. Back to our uh, our old environment. Back to a, a new local lockdown coming <clears> soon, apparently. Yeah, it's good, yeah. Yeah, fun stuff, <laughs> fun stuff. Stay in your homes, don't go outside. It's so weird how apocalyptic everything has fucking got. Yeah. So we're so used to it now. I drove past a sign the other day. It just said, uh, warning, keep the virus down. <laughs> that isn't some Black Mirror shit. I don't fucking know what is, you know? I overheard a couple of people at work who are big film buffs as well. They were talking about how much they thought The Road with uh, Viggo Mortensen based on uh, Cormac McCarthy's novel was uh, really undersung, which I agree with. It. But they're like, oh, you know, there's... This you know stuff that's almost evocative you know in this situation. I thought no, they were allowed to go outside in that. <laughs> you know, come. They're allowed to walk down the yeah, road. Yeah, they are exactly. <laughs> the clue is in the title. Bit of film news this week <clears throat> to start off with. This looks quite interesting. Ridley Scott has just cast Joaquin Phoenix, our old friend Joaquin, as Napoleon for his movie Kitbag. Well, yeah, this is going to be a Napoleon biopic. Do you say kickbag or kitbag? Kitbag. Kitbag. Yeah, there's a, uh, let me just find the quote here. Yes, there's this, an old <laughs> saying, uh, there is a general staff hidden in every soldier's kit bag, which is a saying from Napoleonic times, apparently. Cool. So this like is going to be a uh, historical epic in the vein of Gladiator, which is, of course, the last time Joaquin Phoenix worked with Ridley Scott. And uh, yeah, I'm kind of looking forward to that. I mean, anything Ridley Scott does, to be honest, we've... <clears throat> We've espoused his virtues many times on this show. Absolutely. And Joaquin Phoenix's as well. At 100%. I mean, that does sound promising. I know that uh, Ridley Scott's currently got in the pipeline, what is it, The Last Duel with uh, Matt Damon and a few mm. others. But um, but I can't, with that, I just cannot stop thinking of his debut, The Duelists. Yeah, because yeah. which is one of my favourite films. So that's Napoleonic era as well, isn't it? Yeah, well, it's it transcends about um, three or four decades, I think. But that was for a directorial debut, as we said previously. That is an absolute masterwork, and I do have this residual hope that oh, well, you know, Ridley's kind of going back to the themes that launched him. Yeah, and I wonder if that'll approach. You know, the last duel can approach the majesty of the 1977 film. Not they're unrelated, but I just hope that there's going to be that spirit of epic tude in there. And I'm not. I don't really know. I don't know how to feel about it. Well, I mean, one of the defining things about Ridley Scott, I think, when you look at his interviews and his work and the amount that he's managed to achieve over the years, is his his impatientness. I guess his lack of patience. Yes. And I think this whole COVID thing, he's just been sitting there planning his his next move. I mean, the guy's in his 80s now. And I saw an interview with him recently where he said, um, it's always annoyed me that actors can do three films a year. Whereas when you're directing and creating these films, it takes years just to make one. Yeah. He hates the, the slow pace of it. Yeah. And he reckons his crew are the fastest in the business. He can shoot a film in about 80 days. So, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to that. I mean, Ridley Scott historical epic starring Joaquin Phoenix. What's not to like, right? Well, you know, yeah, you know, low end tolerance, high end standards. Look at the kind of stuff it's created. Mm. So yeah, Ridley is always a name that imbues excitement for me, definitely. And I believe, yeah, it's the screenwriter David Scarper who also wrote. I believe I'm getting this correct. He also wrote uh, All the Money in the World, which I thought was quite a good film. Um, oh, what the uh, the Getty kidnapping? Yeah, the, uh, yeah, the Getty yeah. biopic. So, yeah, I think that's got a lot of things going for it immediately. I mean, the story of Napoleon is, of course, yeah. extremely interesting. 
So yeah, I'm actually really looking forward to that. Yeah, the last Napoleon. I think um, a couple of years ago, I remember watching the Rod Steiger one, courtesy of my dad's recommendation. That was quite interesting. But Joaquin is Joaquin is a pretty. We've said before about how he he is definitely a, another level type of actor. So yeah, that's um, that's definitely one that's going in uh, the anticipation bank. And of course, there's another film that's been in production for a while now. I'm not sure how far along they are with that. Probably quite a bit at this point because I remember seeing stills <laughs> from last year when they were shooting. Uh, but The Matrix 4 is apparently one really? of the way. Yeah. Okay, well, I'm not really looking forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, mean, I was chatting the other day with someone about The Matrix Reloaded and the fact that I don't think I've seen that for a good 10 years. And apparently, if you go and watch it again now, once you take away that whole hype train thing, it's actually not as bad as people remember it being. So I'd be interested to do a rewatch of The Matrix Revolutions. Matrix Revolutions, that was shit. And that was a terrible film. I'm certainly happy to take that challenge as well. I just, I mean, I, I really, really do like and respect the original Matrix a lot, as many do. And I recall watching the sequels and just feeling nothing. Just mm. the, the wonder of the 1999 one, that all felt just so sucked out I remember Reloaded and Revelations. I remember Reloaded being a mess, but there were good sequences in it. I think everyone remembers that highway car chase sequence. And there was that terrible, was it the Burly Brawl thing, mm. where it, everything was like, oh, it's the best CGI in the world, and you watched it, and it was like bad video game <laughs> graphics. I mean, it's, it's really pretty rough, that. But apparently, as a piece, it's aged better than you would expect. I might rewatch it and do a review of it on this podcast. Yeah, if, there, see, if there's something... See what's changed. <clears throat> if there's something to that, more than happy to take a second peek, yeah. Well, anyway, uh, Jessica Henwick is in it. Uh, she recently told comicbook.com, yeah, Lana Wachowski <laughs> is doing some really interesting things on a technical level in the same way that, you know, she created a style back then. I think she's going to change the industry again with this film. There's some camera rigs that I've never seen before that we're using. That's probably all I can say for that. So we've got Keanu Reeves, Carrie Ann Moss, Jada Pinkett Smith reprising their roles as Neo, Trinity, and Niobe. And we've also got Neil Patrick Harris is in this, weirdly. Really? Yeah, (laughs) that's bizarre. But yeah, no one really knows anything about The Matrix 4 other than it's sort of, we think about three quarters of the way through. Can't they just find an excuse to bring Cypher back from the dead? I just want Joey Pants to be in it again. Yeah. (laughs) It's difficult, isn't it? Because the original Matrix was an absolute genre-defining classic. Yeah. And then it pissed on its own parade with the sequels. And can you go forward from that point, or is it best to just leave it alone? At least it's not a fucking prequel. Yeah. I'm sick of prequels. That would be a really shitty idea to do. So at least it seems to be a continuation of... But then who knows? And no one really knows anything about it. Maybe it is a prequel. Well, I've always... I hope not, because... Like yourself. But they have Keanu Reeves in it. Keanu Reeves has very obviously aged since. And obviously the first film was about him being pulled out of the Matrix, so it can't be a prequel. I'm hard-pressed to think of immediate examples, you know, that prove my own standpoint wrong, but right off the the whole concept of prequels in and of itself has always rubbed me up the wrong way, for purely for the reason that this inaugural film, this is the starting point. Can't we just be, you know, from here? Just take it as it is from here as a linear acceleration. Why do you have to go back and do this and that and the other thing? And you don't even have the pain of being a Star Trek fan. No. Star Trek, after after Star Trek Nemesis, everything since then has been a prequel. So you had Star Trek Enterprise, which was before the Captain Kirk original Star Trek. You had Star Trek Discovery, which is just after Enterprise. And you've had the Star Trek films that are reboots of the franchise in a different universe. So if you're invested in the Star Trek universe, no one's decided to continue it beyond 
2000s, some point in the early 2000s. I can't remember when Nemesis was exactly. I don't want to know what happened before. I want to know yeah. what happened next. I would argue that an inextricable facet of good writing is the ability to present a world where <clears throat> the things that are not given explicit exposition, the audience are, you know, have comfort in filling that in in their head, you know, with a sense yeah. of wonderment, if nothing else. You know, that ge- generates momentum. It generates enthusiasm for it. If you You're, just spell everything out, it's just... Ugh. You always risk falling into George mm-hmm. Lucas territory, where he decides to yep. go back and explain everything, and it yeah. just ruined the magic of the original films. I hate that, you know, like my daughter, for example, showing her the Star Wars films, I've been doing it the way I saw them. So A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi, then doing the prequels, then doing the more recent films. Because otherwise, if you watch them actually in sequence, the prequels ruin everything that's good about the original films. Yeah, it does. No one's shocked by I Am Your Father anymore because, yeah, of course he is. That's the entire first three films are about that. <laughs> you know, it's, actually, it's actually shat on its own <clears throat> plot line, which is, yeah, just, yeah. But yeah, anyway, I mean, we'll go and see it. We will be reviewing it. I, I imagine visually it will be spectacular at the very least. Let's, yeah, let's hope so. I mean, but the Wachowskis, you know, I mean, I love the 1999 Matrix. I love Bound as well. Do you remember Bound? Yeah, I like yeah. Bound. I, I, you I can see a lot of the Matrix sort of yeah. symbolism and visual style coming in in Bound. I've always wanted them to do another Bound because that was such a, I love that as such a confrontational tight little uh, neo-noir caper tale. Mm. They, I think they executed that really, really well. And I've always wanted them to retreat back to that sort of smaller scale, even though they're obviously capable of much more dynamic and grand stuff given The Matrix. But they were so good in their debut with Bound. I just wish they'd do something that was a bit, you know, small, smaller scale and grittier again. But Do you mean a new idea? Yeah, a new idea. It'd be nice to see some new ideas, wouldn't it? Yeah, you know, that'd be nice. Or not, yeah. a, a nice callback to something they did very well right off the bat. You know, just and then you know. take it somewhere different <clears throat> rather yeah. than giving us the same shit over and over and over. Absolutely again. right. But we shall see. <clears throat> anyway, on with our regularly scheduled <clears throat> bullshit, Liam. Yep, you've got some reviews. Yeah. So uh, this week we have a brand spanker, and we also have one from a couple of years ago that I think flew under many radars that I wanted to give a shout out to. But yeah, let's start with The Wolf of Snow Hollow. This is a film that premiered on video on demand, I think it was last Friday. And um, this is written, directed by, and starring Jim Cummings. And Jim Cummings stars as Officer John Marshall, who is a senior police officer in the town of Snow Hollow. As the film opens, there's a young couple. They've driven to this town, which is basically in the middle of bumfuck nowhere in the US. Snow Hollow, it's very snowy all the time, as you can probably imagine. And they've gone there on a nice romantic retreat. The male is planning to propose to his lady they go out, have something to eat, get into a sort of weirdly threatening scuffle with some locals. They come back to their rented cottage and the young lady goes outside in the middle of the night to turn on some hot water. Fiance, your boyfriend, whatever, hears a strange noise, goes outside and just finds her ripped to absolute shit. Blood and guts all over the floor. Off screen, something has done her. Unsurprisingly, this sets the residents of Snow Hollow into an absolute frenzy, freaking out, you know, oh, we've got a serial killer. No, we don't have a serial killer. A man can do that thing. It's a wolf. No, it's a wolf man. No, it's a wolf 
thing. Man bear pig. Yeah, man bear pig. Is yeah. it man bear pig? Yeah, every, everyone's just going absolutely nuts thinking about what this what could be. What I would give for a man bear yeah. pig film. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll get a crowdfund going, man. We'll, Trey we'll, Parker and Matt Stone, yeah. if you're listening, and we know yeah. you're not. We'll contact Al Gore. If Al Gore could play man bear pig. Oh, yeah. That would be even better. We'll set it up now. That would be good and keep that in the bank. but Everyone's freaking out and going nuts and debating what it could be. And so all of this furore lands on the shoulders of Officer John Marshall, as played by Jim Cummings. Now, Officer Marshall, he's the son of the sheriff of Snow Hollow, who is played by the late, great Robert Forster in his final role, by the way. Very, very oh, really? good little wow. performance, yeah, before he tragically passed last year. Officer Marshall has... <laughs> Just a clusterfuck of a life, essentially. He polices a town where nine times out of ten nothing happens, but on top of that, he is a recovering alcoholic. He is bitterly divorced from his ex-wife and they share custody of their teenage daughter who is about to go off to college and has a very uneasy relationship with Mr. Marshall. And also his dad is, as sheriff of the town, he has a really bad heart condition and he is re a really stubborn, cranky, mad old coot. He doesn't want to work from home, let alone retire. So he Marshall has just got all of this shit going on and now he has got a series of murders to deal with because this thing, whatever it is, the titular wolf, keeps killing young women and he has to find a way to do something about it whilst juggling domestic problems, whilst juggling really idiotic colleagues and just general uh, small-town madness. Now, I put in my review, and it's a statement I stand by, this is definitely one of the superior comedy outings of the year. This, oh, it's a comedy? Yeah, 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 it's a comedy horror. The way you were describing it, just sounded like a straight, flat-out horror. So, no, no, it's a comedy horror. Sorry, and it's a comedy horror where everything lands, man. I was pissing myself laughing at this. This is really funny. I can't remember. I think the last time before this where I really, really enjoyed a comedy this year, really enjoyed a 2020 comedy release, would have been Palm Springs that we spoke about a few months ago. But this one, everything lands, everything's really good. One moniker that's been doing the rounds is Fargo with a werewolf, which... I'm a little bit uneasy about that because Fargo is is just has such iconic status. The well, I was going to ask you actually because I was thinking <clears> like, so what kind of humour is? It's not Coen Brothers humour then. The humour is very dry and offbeat and just weird and absurd, and it has this great strange uh, timing to it that yeah, you I think comparing it to a Coen's work is not off the mark. Although I wouldn't advise people to go in expecting something that is quality tier in comparison to an average Coen Brothers work. But in terms of a in terms of a comedy fulfilling its objective, I think the Wolf of Snow Hollow is great. It's hilarious, it's ridiculous. The titular wolf, the final reveal on that is just so deadpan stupid that fits in with the tone of the film perfectly. I've heard a few people criticising Jim Cummings' capacity for directing himself and his acting overall. I actually thought it was brilliant because he veers between this dry exasperation into temper tantrums because... You know, he's yearning for another drink and his daughter won't listen to him and his dad won't listen to him and his colleagues are just a bunch of complete idiots. I think the way that uh, Cummings as Officer Marshall just explodes into these, uh, just do your fucking job, and switches back into a kind of dry malaise, I think it's really well done. I think it serves 
the comedy of the piece really well. Dry humour is my utmost favourite kind of comedy. As we see, I go to that saying, but I love the kind brothers. But I just something that is deadpan with timing that hits those markers every single time. It's gory in places as well. When the murder scenes take place, there's one in particular that in the most with the most subtle of touches is really, really beyond the pale. They nestled it in so effectively. In a film that's not chock full of sombre atmosphere, that's one there's one particular moment that I won't spoil where I went, ooh, that's pretty that's pretty fucking vicious. But yeah, I just love the way they just nestled it in never and ever. It's a really, really good comedy, man. Really enjoyed this. I'm one. just looking at the poster. There's <clears throat> all the posters, fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, with the, the with the wolf's head. Man. Yeah, and it's like yeah. a top down shot of uh, someone walking through the snow, and it's like there's a blood trail around them, and the path that he's creating <clears throat> in the snow behind him is in the shape of a wolf, which is yeah, really, really nice. There's it's got some. There's yeah. been a few uh, film posters recently. Where I'm like, <clears throat> I must get a copy of that. It's must good, that up somewhere. Yeah, it's really good. Uh, one sort of just to give like, a, a mild. It's not even a spoiler, but just the. Uh, the occurrence of a scene, there's one brief bit where Officer Marshall is leaving an AA meeting and he is just really furious because the townspeople and their spouses and others, they just won't stop talking about what could it be and spreading rumours and making his job harder. And there's this moment where Marshall is exiting the AA meeting and he's shouting at someone off screen who is in one of the chairs. So like, Tell your wife to stop spreading rumors around town. Tell her to like take the newspaper to keep that she keeps believing everything and roll it up and stick it up her fucking ass. And you can hear that the guy he's talking to gets out of the seat and he's big. <laughs> and Cummings' reaction is just like, okay, I'm leaving now. Just like, and it's just really, really, it's just so snappily. Just it's just got that quick fire stuff. Everything landed for me, man. I've seen a lot of hateful reviews for this film saying that they they found it to be a slapdash mess that didn't hit any notes at all. My take on it was completely and utterly diametric to that. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. I'll give that one <clears> a go then. Uh, what's the second this week? <clears throat> yeah, so 2015, this um, little film from 2015 called Cop Car. This is an interesting one. It's written and directed by John Watts, who did uh, Spider-Man Homecoming oh, yeah. and the other Spider-Man starring Tom Holland neither of which I have ever seen. I did. Actually, I quite liked them. Yeah, were they good? In fact, I can... You don't remember it, but we watched half of one of those together. When was this? Drunk in a bar. It was on the TV. <laughs> well, no, I do not remember that at all. <laughs> yeah. As, Actually, as comic book movies go, I thought those two films weren't, weren't bad. No, I mean, I, did I enjoy it? Yeah. Because it's... As far as I'm concerned, in terms of recollection, the only thing that I've actually seen Tom Holland in is The Devil all the time that we discussed not too long ago, but it turns out that I must be mistaken. <laughs> but, yes, yeah, so written and directed by John Watts, this has James Friedson Jackson and Hayes Wilford as Travis and Harrison. They're two 10-year-old boys. They're best friends and tearaways, and as the film opens... They're walking across a vast field somewhere in the American Midwest. And Travis keeps trying to goad Harrison into saying increasingly coarser swear words, you know, fart, bugger, you know, and gradually produces a pussy, fuck, etc., etc. They're too uh, solidly just... You've got to get them in every episode. Absolutely, yeah. They're too... Amazon Music, we're off already. Uh, yep, yeah, 100%. <laughs> well, you know, fuck off. Fuck off. <laughs> too consummate delinquents who they are just idyllic, you know, that idyllic 
sense of fun that you have as a 10-year-old. You know, when you'd go around, because we were of the age where you couldn't sit in day all day on your PS5 or We are the last generation to remember yeah. what it was like before the internet. Yeah. We actually, when we would have been 10 years old, you wouldn't really have much recourse but to go outside and wander around if you had any... Wander around with cherished. a stick. Wander around, and these kids... Throwing two, bricks through car windows. Yeah, yeah these two, well, these two kids are very much of that ilk. So they're wandering around, they're wandering around with sticks, they're throwing sticks at things, they're goading each other, and they're just having fun with their natural environment, just fucking around, playing games, everything's amazing. People are either a good guy or a bad guy. They're just inhabiting this perpetual world of make-believe in the way that only kids of that age can before they grow up to be decrepit, horrible pricks like us. <laughs> so they come, they come into a clearing... And they discover the titular cop car, which is an abandoned cruiser that has the insignia of the local sheriff emblazoned on it. They stare at it for a while and they throw a few objects at it. And then after a couple of minutes, they walk towards the car, sneak around for a bit more, look, see if anyone is inside. And then they get inside it. And after a few exchange glances, should we, shouldn't we, they hotwire the car and they drive off with it. <laughs> now, these are two 10-year-olds who know just about how to drive very erratically. Well, as it turns out, this cop car belongs to the local sheriff, Kretzer, played by Kevin Bacon. I haven't seen him in a while. Yeah, Kevin Bacon as Sheriff Kretzer. And he momentarily left the car for the boys to find because he was up to some very horrible, no good, naughty business indeed. This is one corrupt, unpleasant motherfucker. And he's doing some dark shit a few hundred yards away from the boys just as they drive off with his livelihood, essentially and potentially are about to get him in shitload of trouble, comes back to find it abandoned and freaks the hell out because not only is his car gone, but he's been doing some shit that could land him in jail for the rest of his life. This is a really bad dude. And so from there, the film deals with Sheriff Kretzer trying to get the cop car back and with Travis and Harrison just going completely nuts, careering all over the road and generally causing complete fucking havoc. Now, this is a film that upon inspection, I find it to be drastically underappreciated. What I thought it did, it had this really nice thing of encapsulating the excitement of being, a cra especially a crazy 10-year-old boy, you know, no sexism is intended, but the kind of the capacity for roughhousing mm. and more boisterous play and more kind of potentially dangerous, fantastical scenarios. It did that absolutely brilliantly, I thought. And, the way, and it juxtaposed that with... It's uh, the portrayal of Kevin Bacon as Sheriff Kretzer. It's like these kids are unaware that there is actually this real-life bad guy, this real-life boogeyman who is trying to ruthlessly chase them down. And, I, and it was, I mean, it's, what is it, about, it's about 87 minutes long and it never outstays its welcome. And it's just a, it's a great vein of black comedy running through it, really solid performances. And, yeah, I just thought it was so solidly done. Kevin Bacon, well, I mean, he's extremely menacing in it, but he also adds this kind of subtle offbeat humour to his performance because he's not really a smart guy, but he, he's, he's, he's cunning enough. He's not smart to, you know, just totally not 
you know, potentially fuck up his entire career and land himself in jail for the rest of his life. But he's just wily enough to think on his feet and get out of sticky situations. And so it follows that dual narrative of him trying to dislocate the kids and get the get the car back. You know, there's one point where the kids, uh, they smash through a gate and they find some loaded weapons in the car. And <laughs> this film features 10-year-old kids really badly mishandling loaded weapons in a way that will make the audience go, <laughs> but it's really, really well done. And you've got great little cameos in it from Shay Wiggum, who we spoke about. And I think he was in, uh, what is it, the Perry Mason I think we mentioned him. He was him, indeed, yeah. Mentioned him not so long ago. Played uh, yeah. Eli Thompson in Paul Walk Empire. He's got a really great little bit part in this. Does he play a cop? No, he doesn't actually. Because he normally plays yeah. people in the dirty cops and that sort of thing. No, he actually he actually plays someone who's ultimately in conflict with Kevin Bacon's character. Oh, okay. And towards the last part of the film, there is Kevin Bacon and Shay Wigan meet in a sequence that I thought was very, very effective. Cameron Mannheim, who, she's a really great character actress. The, the only thing I remember seeing her from before this was Happiness with Todd Salons, but she's another one with a really tremendous amount of talent. And even though her part in this is small, she is utilised to great effects. But yeah, it's just a really, it's got kind of moments of warmth. It, it penetrates that kind of feeling of what it was like to be a kid. It, it does take you back there whilst also never removing the looming crazy threat of Sheriff Kretzer and various other characters who could potentially do the boys a great deal of harm. And it just like zips by, it goes bang. I really, some people have complained about the ending, but I really liked the resolution that it had. I thought that it actually bookended the tale really, really nicely. And yeah, I just wanted to do a bit on this one because I thought it was really badly underrated. It seems to have quite middling scores on everything. I was just looking at the Wikipedia article here. It says in the initial brief, actually, in the initial paragraph, the film received mainly positive reviews from critics, but was not commercially successful, earning $143,000 on a $5 million budget. Yeah. Wow. Oh no, it's pretty bad, man. Because I hadn't heard of this either. So this is... so. Yeah, cop car. I'd never heard of it. It's good. It's good. It's a. I, I, I'm really confident that you would enjoy it, and I'm prepared to eat my hat. Or we've discussed also shoe, like a shoe, a shoe main course on this podcast at one point. If you ever don't like what I've recommended you, but I thought that was just for Tenet. Sorry, uh, just anything. Oh, really? Yeah, I'm gonna go. I'll, I'll so say, if I watch any of the films you review that you said were good and that I don't think they're any good, you have to eat one of your shoes? Well, uh, you know, Werner Herzog is a man I respect very much, so I'm prepared to emulate his fanaticism. With garlic sauce, right? Is that correct? No, I think garlic sauce and some onions and stuff. Right. I, well, but that's a hell of a bet there, mate. <laughs> but yeah, fair yeah, enough. That's not cynical gimmickry at all, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Anything to get an audience in, man. But no, it's really... And, and a lovely little touch, that the, the police dispatcher that you never see, I just really like... I don't know, maybe it's just me. I love this little touch. The police dispatcher was actually voiced by Kyra Sedgwick, who is Kevin Bacon's real-life wife. So yeah. I kind of, for me, I had this sort of meta thing of she's she's over the radio while her crazy, quasi-psychopathic, corrupt husband is out there trying to hunt down these 10-year-olds and generally acting like a fucking lunatic. You know, my the way my bizarre mind works, I found that to be an almost sweet little detail there. <laughs> but no, I just think Cop Car was just very, very enjoyable. And... Very good, subtle humour that hits the markers when it needs to and really good performance from the boys. And yeah, just really quite a sadly overlooked one. It's not. It's nothing that's going to blow your socks off, but it certainly doesn't deserve to be as unknown as it is. 
It's good. It's good entertainment. I mean, do you know what? I think it's something. It's something you could even watch with your kid. Really? Yeah, I, I wouldn't consider it to be uh, possessing material that has. You know, it's, it's n- nothing that I would personally consider too inappropriate for, say, an 11 or 12-year-old. That could potentially open me up for a lot of trouble. But So Wikipedia has this down as a thriller, black comedy crime film. Uh, essentially, yeah. There's more... Is it laugh out loud funny? Is there? No, no, no. It's not laugh out loud funny. It's another one where the humour comes in sort of sporadic, dry, eccentric bursts. But they are sporadic, dry, eccentric bursts that I really liked. And a lot of it comes out in Kevin Bacon's frenetic performance. Very, very well done. You know, frenetic with positive connotation. So, yeah, it's it's ultimately a thriller. It does have a great black comic vein running through it. And also the performances of Welford and Freed and Jackson as the two kids, as I said before, it did really transport me back to that place of, you know, this, you know, we, we're out in the woods with a stick. This is fucking amazing. <laughs> Whereas now, not so much. But, yeah, really, really nice, solid little film. Halcyon days of our youth. Yeah, family. absolutely right, man. But no, that, that I would definitely, um, I would say stick on cop, stick on cop car with your family, see what you think. Excellent. It's good, man. It's really good. Speaking of swearing and family, by the way, I, <laughs> I recently found out that my future father-in-law is uh, now listening to this podcast. Oh, wonderful. So, hi, Paul. <laughs> uh, apologies. <laughs> He's really going to love the review I'm about to do now. Hello, Paul. We've never met and you probably hope we never will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, then. Uh, TV of the week. Here we go. I've got a double feature this week. Uh, the first thing I want to start off with. These are both things, by the way, that are earlier releases this year. Well, one of them has been running for a long time, actually. And they sort of passed me by on their initial. I knew they were out there. I knew they were there, <laughs> existing in the TV ether, so to speak. But I've been doing a bit of catching up because, well, there's a lot of really, really good stuff about to come out TV-wise. So in the meantime, I've been scratching around with something really good to recommend. So I'm going to start off with this one. Uh, this is called The Great. Okay. okay. Heard of this one? Can't say I have, actually. So this was a Hulu release in the States, but you can find it on Amazon Prime in the UK and I believe a number of other countries as well. This is a satirical comedic drama about the rise of Catherine the Great. Oh, okay. So we're going well back into Russian history. Orny Catherine. Yes. So uh, what do you know of Catherine the Great? I know that she liked a good ploughing. She did indeed. And there was the famous rumour, of course, that she likes to um, involve herself sexually with horses. She was a, she was a confident woman of the world. Yes. Well, yeah. so this is satire. This is comedy, and this is <laughs> okay. Let me just let me just do it like this. Okay. <laughs> so we have um, Ellie Fanning as Catherine the Great, Dakota Fanning's younger sister. Yes. By the way. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas Holt playing Peter the Third of Russia, and a bunch of other very well known faces as well. You got Adam Godley is playing the uh, Archbishop, who everyone calls Archie. And uh, <laughs> one of the great things about this, when you get the, the initial title sequence, is it says the Great, and then there's an asterisk, <clears throat> and underneath it says something like a mostly true story. <laughs> so this is history done with a bit of a quirk and a twist. So yeah. we, in, we initially find Catherine the Great. She's swinging on a swing set in her garden. She's um, swinging backwards and forwards and talking about the uh, wonderful husband that she's about to be betrothed to. She's being sent off to Russia to marry and this wonderful life she's going to have. And she's got one of her confidants just swinging next to her, sort of looking at her weird going, you know what you're about to let yourself in for, right? But she's very naive. And so mm. she gets taken into Russia to marry Peter III, played by Nicholas Holt. Nicholas Holt, by the way, also in The Favourite. Yes, he was very good in that. 
Yes. So uh, remind me about Very the favorite because I'm going to get back onto that later. I love the favorite. She gets taken to this palace in Russia to be betrothed and immediately realizes that she's in way deeper than she expected to be because Peter the Third is completely and utterly, and I'm sorry, Paul, fucking mad. <laughs> An absolute aristocratic loon. He smashes glasses, repeat, like every single drink is a huzzah and then smash a glass. He's rampantly fucking his way around every single eligible woman and ineligible woman in the household and is a complete and utter arrogant, stuck-up, aristocratic, inbred bastard. And she's so... <laughs> it sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the show's a lot of fun as well, actually. So she's taken aside by the archbishop who's brought her there and she's taken off to another room. And the immediate clue that this show is going to be very vulgar and very dirty is he takes her away to a side room and says, uh, well, I need to check if you're still a virgin. And she goes, oh, well, well, how are you going to go about doing that? And he takes the two fingers on his right hand, licks them and then holds them up into the air. And there's a, and there's a smash cut. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Basically, Catherine the Great is in way, way deeper than she expects. She's betrothed to this absolute loon and she then attempts to subvert him, to subvert his court, to worm her way in, get influence and change Russia for the better. So there's your basic set up there. I mean, those amongst you listening that are of a historical bent will know where this series goes because Catherine the Great was a very, very interesting character and the way she managed to get around Peter III of Russia is very interesting as well. First thing to say about this is it's really, really pacey. It really wants to run at its story and run with its narrative. It's super, super snappy and fast, particularly the first episode. Second thing to say is it's extremely funny. Mm. I mean, this is a razor sharp script. I mean, absolutely pin sharp. The dialogue is wonderful. What I loved one of the nice lines in the first episode was when uh, she's sitting at a dinner next to her new husband, Peter III, and she mentions that she saw some soldiers as she was coming into the palace. And he goes, oh, really? How did they look? And she said, well, actually, they looked uh, a bit morose and a bit sad, really. He goes, shit, did we lose? Did we, did we lose? Can someone tell me? <laughs> it's got that wonderful sort of snappy, rambunctious, bouncy sort of dialogue to it. It's very vulgar. It's very dirty. There's a lot of sex in it. There's uh, defiling of corpses. There's um, some really quite hardcore violence and stuff like that as well. But it's so much fun, this Honestly, I am absolutely awestruck by the show and I'm so surprised that I missed it beforehand. I don't know why everyone isn't talking about The Great because it's got, for a start, it's got better looking sets than The Crown. Wow. I, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, this is a period drama where you can go, wow, holy hell did they spend so some lavish time on production. This. Yeah. Incredibly lavish production. Mm. It's also doing a damn good attempt. I mean, it says it's an occasionally true story. My Russian history is admittedly a little bit rusty. But from what I know of it, it's actually way more accurate than you would initially expect, particularly because I think if you were to do this as a period drama without the jokes and without the funniness and doing it with, say, BBC sensibilities, you actually wouldn't get the whole of the story. Because it's free with its ability to show people fucking, to show violence, to show silliness, to show aristocratic lunacy the way it actually was, and it makes a big joke out of it. I mean, this, we go, let's go back to The Favourite for a second, okay? The Favourite worked. Because not only was it a great performance from Olivia Colman, and it was about a very interesting queen, and yes, it blurred the lines, and it played with the history, and made her perhaps madder than she was, and it added some things in there, like rabbits and things that weren't necessarily. <laughs> do you know what I mean? I just, I really love that film, but it was, it is barking mad. Yeah, <laughs> this is barking mad in the same way, but in mm. a weird way, by being barking mad, I think it actually gets closer to the truth. And if you used to do it as a stuffy period drama, 
there's actually more life to it in a sense that you go, yeah, I kind of believe in this. Yeah. And the first episode, I laughed out loud at least 10 times in the first episode, is really pin sharp funny. And then after that, it actually spreads its humour out a bit more and becomes a bit more about the courtly intrigue and Catherine's place in the universe and how she has to adapt to the court around her. And there are all these, uh, she's expected to socialise with all these women of the court that have formed this vicious sort of witch's coven and they hate her because she's got ideas of her own. And there's a certain way you're expected to behave as an empress and she's got far more liberal ideas than they do. And they think that she's just simply a simp that's been introduced to their court and deserves to be kicked around at some points quite literally. And I think it's just got a level of accuracy to it whilst being incredibly funny and incredibly good to watch. I can't believe more people aren't raving about the grain. I'm so surprised. I mean, yeah, I keep my ear to the ground on this sort of stuff. I knew about it on the periphery, but I don't understand why people aren't absolutely raving about this show. If you've got any sort of love for period dramas, you'll love this because it's period drama, but with humour. And if you just like pure comedy, watch it for that. And if you just like pure history, watch it for that. Every performance is fantastic. Um, Adam Godley is Archbishop um, Archie. Is so... He's, <laughs> he's one of those Russian Orthodox priests with a big beard, the Rasputin haircut. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. And he's sort of there on the outsides, weaving his way in and doing like political machinations and all this sort of thing. But he's also got this very deadpan humour that works beautifully. Nicholas Holt as this raving... I got big sort of um, Hugh Laurie in Blackadder the Third. Oh, yes. Kind of yeah, vice yeah. He's completely, <laughs> completely oblivious to the world around him. He's off you know, hunting rabbits with two pistols, guns akimbo style. You know, and it, it, everything is complete lunacy in very much the same way it was lunacy in The Favourite. Wasn't that a thing in The Favourite about a guy with a duck? Yeah. Go and walk a duck around. It's that sort of lunacy. It's like, it's that sort of filthy lucre that the aristocratic classes had. And it plays with that and does it so... I, the other week I reviewed The Duchess. Yeah. The Duchess is vulgar, but there's no wit to it and there's no delivery. This is vulgar, but it's got so much wit and so much delivery. Even if you don't like vulgar humour, you'll find yourself laughing. And it won't be that silly to say, oh, I can't believe she just said that. You'll find yourself laughing because the joke was clever. And it just yeah. does that consistently the whole way through. I think this show is one of the best things I've seen all year. It is absolutely, sorry, Paul, fan-fucking-tastic. <laughs> really, really fantastic. So because the further with which you're describing it, I'm surprised this, because if this had exploded in terms of feedback, then I'm, I'm sure I'm, I would, I'm you, sure I, I would have come across it by now. But if you look it up on Google, it was reviewed extremely, extremely well. The, from user reviews to critics' reviews, everybody loved this show. And yet I heard almost no hype about it whatsoever. I've never seen anything about it. Or I've seen nothing about it on Twitter. I've seen nothing about it on IMDb or Google News or anything. Trust me, watch The Great. It is sumptuous and it is so cleverly and sharply written. It's one of my highlights of the year so far. When we get to our 2020 roundup, The Great is going to feature very, very highly. Every performance is fantastic. Every line is beautifully delivered. And it actually goes into some real history that's very, very interesting. That's extraordinary praise, man. That's going right on the watch list. Yeah, yeah, do it. Really, really do it. How many seasons are there? This is just the one. Oh, oh, is it a standalone? Is it just like a sort of mini-series? It's been renewed for a second season, but obviously everything's fucked, so we don't know when that's going to come out. Of course. No, good. I look forward to it, yeah. One of my absolute standouts this year. Please, if any of that sounds interesting to you, go and watch it. I guarantee you will not be disappointed. Awesome. Sounds good to me. And the second thing I'm going to review this week, I mentioned it last week and I had quite a few people messaging me saying, I review it now. So I'm going to review it now. <laughs> uh, this is Shit's Creek. 
Oh, yeah, I do recall you saying this. I, I still have no idea what this show's about. I haven't watched a single frame. So. This is one of those ones that had a really, really big following. Uh, I didn't watch it when it first came out. I only sort of became aware of it around about season two, season three, when sort of word was getting out about it. And then it won an Emmy recently, and a lot of people sort of came out of the woodwork and said, oh, yeah, Schitt's Creek is, is fully deserving. It's one of those ones that sort of, it's back-channeling its way through everyone's consciousness. Right, yeah. So this is charting the, well, essentially the downfall of the fictional Rose family. The first episode, they're in their palatial mansion, and it turns out that their business manager hadn't been paying any of their taxes. But because they were so rich and so sort of, they had servants for everything and they were passing all their duties off to everybody else, they didn't even notice they hadn't paid any taxes. So they got all of their basically a huge embezzlement case took away all of their wealth and riches and they said well you're allowed to keep one thing and that one thing is a small town you bought called Shit's Creek and uh, <laughs> Johnny Rose the patriarch of the family played by Eugene Levy oh really? I like Eugene yeah, Levy yeah famously known of course playing the dad in the American Pie series but he's been working in He's a great comic actor. Yeah, Canadian actor. And this is set in Canada as well. Schitt's Creek is a Canadian town. Mm. But he's been doing um, comedy work in Canada and the US for some time. Uh, so Johnny Rose is like, well, hang on a minute, Schitt's Creek? I bought that as a joke. <laughs> his son, David, he bought it as a joke for his birthday. I bought you Schitt's Creek, an entire town, with a <laughs> stupid fucking name. There you go. <laughs> so they said, well, basically, the town's not worth anything because it's a tiny little podunk town in the middle of nowhere and it's called Schitt's Creek. There's no value to it, so we're not even going to embezzle it. That's all you've got left. <laughs> so Johnny Rose, his wife Moira Rose, played by Catherine O'Hara. David Rose, played by Dan Levy, who is Eugene Levy's son. And you, this is uh, Eugene Levy and Dan Levy's show. They wrote and produced and uh, I believe directed a lot of this as well. well so, and they're playing on the screen. For yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, that's nice. That's Actually, nice I believe the stuff. son, Dan Levy, is the, the primary mover behind this. That's pretty cool. And Annie Murphy playing their daughter, uh, Alexis, as well. So you've got the parents, uh, son and daughter, they turn up in this podunk town in the middle of nowhere and they book themselves into the nearest motel. They first run into the uh, <laughs> the town mayor, Roland Shit, <laughs> played by Chris Elliott. Now, Chris Elliott is more famously known as, uh, you know, Scary Movie 2? Yeah. The Mad Butler. Take my strong hand. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's something about Mary. He's been in loads of stuff, yeah. So Roland is a complete <clears throat> and utter hump, basically. He's got absolutely no brain between his ears. He always says the wrong thing. He's the mayor of Schitt's Creek and he gets them stuck into this uh, motel with a free room uh, but they've literally got absolutely nothing left so they're now completely adrift completely fish out of water story they are completely stuck up uh, Moira Rose played by Catherine O'Hara is a famous uh, soap actress but her career is long dead but she's very pretentious she's very upper self and played beautifully as well she's got this very weird accent where everything is overpronounced. <laughs> And there's, po there's points as well the show self-references it. Like, I spoke to that woman with the weird accent. She pronounces her uh, baby, Bebe. <laughs> now, you remember that episode where I stole my own Bebe? I just, I, I'm like, in a good way, this, this all sounds so stupid. Yeah. It's, and, you know, in, in a way that's anticipatory, don't get me wrong. It's, it's very, very silly. What Shit's Creek is, though, primarily more than anything else, is it's lovely and soft. Yeah. There's something beautiful about it in the sense that it's very, very laugh-out-loud funny. All the performances are fantastic, particularly uh, Dan Levy as David Rose and Eugene Levy as uh, Jonathan Rose. And Catherine O'Hara, I've always already spoken about. I mean, it's one of those things where you could go through every single mm -hmm. member of the cast and tell you exactly why each one of them are brilliant. 
There is not a bad performance in the thing. But it does more than that. I mean, it's a very, very funny show. But it's sort of sweet in the sense that the message that it's giving is that the only way you can get something out of the community around you is by giving something back to it. Right. And so as the series continues, so there's six seasons of this, as the seasons continue and the story continues, they gradually integrate themselves in with this town. They go from despising it and looking down at it to finding the value and the virtue within it and to sort of embracing this small town lifestyle in a way that is very believable and very heartwarming as well. They form relationships. It's got a lovely romance, actually, between Dan Levy and let me just look his name up here. And uh, Noah Reed playing Patrick Brewer it starts off as uh, Dan Levy's business manager. And they open a store together in town. But it becomes this very sweet gay romance that's very believable and very touchingly done. I mean, it's got some real deafness, this show. My only real criticism of it is there isn't enough of it. And there are six seasons and 80 episodes in total. And I'm just about to finish it, actually. I'm three episodes off the end. And I'm going to be sad to see it go. Actually, it's one of those shows where, I mean, each episode is about 22 minutes long. It's one of those shows that seems like it should have about 200 episodes. It's, so you've, you've verified that this is, act, this is the finality of it. Yeah, this no, is it. This is, this is the no end. more after this. And I think that's a real shame. I think that it could do with more. And if the biggest criticism you can level against the piece is there should be more of it, that speaks to the quality of the show. Absolutely, yeah. And I'm genuinely um, a little bummed about the fact that I'm about to finish it because these characters are so nicely rounded because the comedy is so sweet because the relationships built between them, it's a genuinely heartwarming, heartfelt ode to small town life and the beauty that lies within and uh, integrating with the people around you and finding their strengths is a key to giving you your strength. It's got those lovely themes running under it, but without ever being sappy, without ever being overly sentimental, I'm going to be very, very sad to say goodbye to these characters. And I think this is why everybody has suddenly popped up with Shit's Creek. Now it's finished. Going, oh shit, no, it's finished. Right, you, everybody needs to watch this now. You know what I mean? And no. I, I'm going for that with this podcast now today as well. If you haven't watched Shit's Creek yet, it's lovely. It's really, really lovely, warm, sharp, witty, well-done television, and it deserves every accolade it gets. Sounds great to me, man. Another one in the uh, watch bin. Yeah, it's just... It's That's a good bin, by the way. I know, it? <laughs> it's just nice, you know? Yeah. Sounds, yeah, no, it sounds... Um, I like that. I like the way that you said you know, there's a lot of... sounds like there's a lot of great mirth in it, but it also has a sort of a nice, subtle undercurrent of poignancy. Yeah. I always, when some something is able to do that, effectively enough where there's no saccharine sort of quotient to it, but it does it with sincerity. Yeah. There's, and I've, I've always, I always really like that. There's moments within it that in clumsy hands, or even not even clumsy hands, anything other than the hands of the show would definitely be saccharine and over the top. But it manages to sort of float above that. There's something about the well-rounded nature of the characters. I mean, it's just great writing, to be yeah. honest, and great performance as well. And I like the fact that it's sort of got modern themes in it, like a you know, a believable gay romance. And yeah, just that whole idea of looking at these, that complete fish out of water thing, this family that looks down on everybody below them. And then once they have that taken away, they discover that actually they never really knew each other. Yeah. And they had to have everything taken away to find out who they really were. And it's just great, clever writing from the get-go. So Shit's Creek is, it's as good as everyone says it is. And I think that's uh, a really nice thing. That's on the viewing, right? A nice one. Mm. 
Okay, then that brings me on to trivia this week to finish off with. And I fell down a Wikipedia hole, as usual. That's easy to do, man. Yeah, looking for trivia for this week. And I thought I'd do, off the back of The Great, and of course, Catherine The Great, I thought I'd do actors who played uh, queens and rulers. Awesome. So yeah, female monarchs, that sort of thing. I hope we do some trivia on that. So let's start out with the big one, of course. Helen Mirren. Yes. So first in 1994 was The Madness of King George. Mirren played Queen Charlotte, the wife of George, who attempted to prevent the king's political enemies from overthrowing him. Then she played uh, Elizabeth I in the two-part 2005 HBO miniseries, played her during the later years of her life, and one year later did the Oscar-winning performance in The Queen, showing on screens worldwide. Uh, She also played Catherine the Great in a miniseries of the same name on uh, cable network, I believe that was a 2019 Show. I never actually saw her. Mirrors play Catherine. Yeah, I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, so it's a mini series. I never saw that either. Oh, wow. Perhaps that might be worth checking out. Although Ellie Fanning, I think, has done such an amazing job at this point. I'm not sure I'd want to see anyone else do it. But yeah. Helen Mirren, of course, is a fantastic uh, actress. And yes, yeah, she's even portrayed fictional queens, voicing the title character in the 1995 animated adaptation of the Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale, The Snow Queen. Uh, a little bit of trivia here. Uh, this is mainly based on her performance in The Queen. Uh, Dame Helen Mirren said that transforming herself into the Queen came almost naturally after the wig and glasses. Especially, she says, because she shares a default facial expression. <laughs> Looking slightly pissed off at everything, I think. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's resting a, bitch face. That's a good nutshell. <laughs> did I just say the Queen's got resting bitch face on this podcast? I believe I did. I believe you did. I believe yeah. I did, yes. Uh, she also regularly reviewed film and video footage of Elizabeth and kept photographs in her trailer during production. Screenwriter Peter Morgan said it was convincing enough that by the end of the production, crew members who had been accustomed to slouching or relaxing when they addressed her were standing straight up and respectfully folding their hands behind their backs. Wow. When she was interviewing people who knew the Queen personally, Dame Helen Mirren discovered that the Queen suffers from obsessive compulsive disorder. It was her idea to show the Queen putting pens in order on the table while talking to Tony Blair on speakerphone at Balmoral. Director Stephen Frears was not convinced at first, but thought it worked quite well in the finished movie. That's interesting, isn't it? The Queen's a bit OCD. I've never heard that. Mm. I believe Dame Helen Mirren. Who wouldn't? Wow. In 2015, Dame Helen Mirren again portrayed Queen Elizabeth II, this time in the Broadway play The Audience. Mirren won the Tony Award for this portrayal of the Queen, making her the <clears> tenth <throat> performer to win both awards for portraying the same person or character, and the first since Lila Kedrova won both awards 31 years earlier. Just going to say, as you said that her Madge has resting bitch face, then we've obviously alienated the loyalists, the royalists rather, the royal loyalists. But uh, it makes sense that we've got a fanship spike in France because there's a strong Republican sentiment out there, so maybe we'll just get... (laughs) Maybe they'll come in droves, people of that ilk. Far be it from us to associate guillotines. (laughs) But, you know, (laughs) I'll leave that where it is. (laughs) and here's a nice other little link here as well and this is going to take some pronunciation on my part so strap yourselves in Dame Helen Mirren is of Russian ancestry and Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip are connected to Russian royalty so bear with me on this Serena Maria (laughs) Serena Maria Fyodorovna wife of Tsar Alexander III and mother of the last Tsar Nicholas II was the elder sister of the Queen's great-grandmother Queen Alexandra and King George I of Greece, grandfather of Prince Philip. It's all a bit inbred there, isn't it? (laughs) Furthermore, he is also the great-great-grandson of Nicholas I of Russia, and his maternal grandmother was the eldest sister of Alexandra Romanov, the last Tsarina of Russia, who in turn is a first cousin twice removed of Queen Elizabeth. 
I, I lost track of that while I was reading it. <clears throat> that hurt my head more than the Journey to China review a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So what the hell is that all about? Of course, we've got uh, Olivia Coleman as well. As oh, we mentioned yes. earlier. Splendid performance. Playing Queen Anne in The Favourite beautifully well. She is, of course, also on The Crown playing Queen Elizabeth II. Currently. Yeah. Um, very much looking forward to, I believe it's November 15th, the new series of The Crown comes out. So I actually haven't reviewed it on this podcast, The Crown in general. So I'll do a big review at that I've point. I've still never started watching it. Very, very good. The thing is, I know that because... I've got no interest in the royal family. I thought the crown was excellent. Well, because wasn't uh, the young is played by Claire Foy? Yes. Who I like very much. I think Claire Foy is a great actress, but I really, really like Olivia Coleman mm. a lot. I'm a really tremendous fan of her, so I feel that it's remiss of me not to have approached the crown, seeing as she takes such a pivotal role in it. But I'll, I'll be doing a, a big review of that when the new season drops. But yeah, as of 2017, Olivia Colman is the only actress who played both Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and her mother, Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother. This is our official title. Colman played the latter in Hyde Park on Hudson in 2012 and the former, of course, in The Crown 2016. What, the Bill Murray film? Uh, I never saw it. Hyde Park on Hudson. Is that Bill Murray? I think it's... Uh, yeah, I think it is. Yeah? <laughs> but she said that on playing Queen Anne in The Favourite, I love that she had every emotion under the sun every five minutes. That's an actor's dream. She's spoiled, grieving, sensitive, and cruel. I love that. Wow. And she's got every emotion under the sun. She changes emotions every five minutes. Yeah, I would imagine as an actor, that is massively fun to play. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, meet your role indeed, man, definitely. A little bit of extra trivia here. This is not related to any Queen-related stuff. I was just looking through Olivia Coleman's trivia. Uh, she was born on the same day as Christian Bale. They were both nominated for an Oscar in 2019, but she was the one that won. Well, the exact, because I know they were both born in 1974. Mm. What, on the exact same day? Mm -hmm. Wow. And both nominated for an Oscar in 2019. It's a nice little weird coincidence. Yeah, I've got absolutely nothing to do with the theme of the trivia, but that's the way we roll on the Cinementalist podcast. Just these cool, pointless little facts. I just find stuff and throw it at you and see what you think of it. We pull stuff out of our arse. (laughs) Hope you enjoy. Uh, Helena Bonham Carter, of course. She was scarcely 20 years old when she first played a queen in Lady Jane, the 1986 romantic drama about Lady Jane Grey, who ruled England for only nine days following the death of King Henry VIII in 1547. Though Carter became widely known to American audiences after playing Marla Singer in David Finch's Fight Club, she didn't play a queen again until 2010's The The King's Speech, when she portrayed Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, opposite Colin First, King George VI, as the couple struggle with his speech impediment and the looming Second World War. Carter is currently playing the Queen Mother's daughter, Princess Margaret, in season three of The Crown. And believe it or not, she's actually related to the current royal family, is old Helena Bonham Carter. Oh, well, really? Yeah, she shares <coughs> a great-great-great-grandfather with Kate Middleton, which makes her a very distant cousin of the future King of England, Prince George. Wow. Hmm. You mentioned the King's Speech. I was just because. Did you ever see the uh, Harry Enfield Paul Whitehouse skit where they do the black and white originals of iconic latter day films? Yeah, yeah. It's the one with the King's Speech where Paul Whitehouse is, what is it, Lionel Logue, just saying, like, stop repeating the first letter of every word several times. You sound like a blithering idiot. Not meaning to demise to such a fucking. <laughs> Such a mean-spirited state. <laughs> and, of course, we couldn't talk about actresses playing queens uh, without talking about Dame Judi Dench. Oh, yes. One yeah. of your absolute favourites. Yeah. <laughs> Dench first played Queen Victoria in 1997's Mrs Brown, opposite Scottish comedian Billy Connolly. A year later, she won a Best Actress Oscar for her portrayal of Elizabeth I in Shakespeare in Love, 
gracing the screen for only eight minutes. In 2017, mm. she put on Victoria's crown again in Victoria and Abdul. Did you see Victoria and Abdul? No, I'm familiar with it. That's a good film. It's a surprisingly good film there. Uh, playing the monarch later in life as she strikes up a friendship with young Indian clerk Abdul Karim. Most famously, however, she played Cleopatra opposite Anthony Hopkins in Peter Hall's 1987 performance of Anthony and Cleopatra at the National Theatre. Mm, I mean, I'm more more a fan of uh, Burton and Liz in that capacity, but that sounds pretty cool. Yeah, Judy Dench, Anthony Hopkins, that's bound to be an amazing performance. I, I know I've said before, like I've sort of indicated a bit of dislike for Judy Dench, but... I think I need to sort of modify that because I really love her in Notes on a Scandal with Kate Blanchett. I don't just dislike Judy Dench in general, but I have, at least anecdotally, I've seen her in just a lot of stuff where I just thought it was a pile of shit. And so, I don't know, maybe there's some, just an, uh, a not very good bias in my mind. Well, I think you might like this line here because she's famous for her dry wit is Judy Dench. Yeah. Uh, her initial reaction when Hall cast her as Cleopatra is well known. I hope you know what you're doing, she told him. You're setting out to direct Cleopatra with a menopausal dwarf. <laughs> okay, I like her. Now you like <clears> Judy <throat> I like her. <laughs> no, I don't, know why, why, I don't know why I said before I don't like Judy Dench, because there are, there are at least a couple of examples where I do, but seeing things like Cats... Mm. And just other and just other big budget films that just fell so flat where she sorry it, to my mind did nothing to rectify it. I would definitely advise you to check out Victoria and Abdul. I thought yeah. that was a really really nice piece actually, and her playing Queen Victoria later <clears throat> in life just sort of makes sense. Did you did you see um, the Kate Blanchett one notes in the scandal? Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. the thing is, like Dench is absolutely magnificent in that. Her but she really scared me in it, as is appropriate to the film's objective. I thought she was great in that. I just wish that she'd make more, more, more films that enable her characterizational fluidity like that. Because she seems to get put in a lot of, um, I don't know, just lowest common denominator pap. <laughs> I mean, anyone who wants to refute that and shoot me down in flames, please do. Because no, I, I am, I can be a bit of a vehemently inaccurate see you next Tuesday at points but you know there we go right that brings us to the end of our free podcast this week off we go to record the premium one <clears throat> this week I'm going to review Hubie Halloween what with Adam Sandler with Adam Sandler yes boy do I have a lot to say about that one you still haven't watched Uncut Gems no we've got trade-offs going on yeah I watched Hubie Halloween though and uh, yeah I've got a review <clears throat> Uh, Liam, what are you doing this week? Um, yeah, I'm going to talk about uh, Eureka by Nicholas Rogue, which will probably be known by a lot of cinephiles out there, but I'd have as a guess that it would be unknown to your kind of pedestrian film goer. It's got one hell of a cast and it's weird as fuck, and I've been looking forward to talking about that. And we also thought, since <clears> we had so much fun with our Jack Nicholson special the other week, we'd do another, but this time around, uh, Liam got to pick, and you picked... Christopher Walken. Oh, hey, oh hey. Hey. Uh, Yeah, sorry if that blew out your eardrums. I, <laughs> I just saw the waveform on the recording. <laughs> yeah, we're going to do a Christopher Walken special as well. We're going to go through his career. We're going to pick out some of our favourites and highlights. And he is some... just, he's one of my favourite human beings. Yeah, was... I've got some great um, Chris Walken <clears throat> trivia and quotes at the end as well. So we're going to have a bit of a Chris Walken special. If any of that sounds good to you, check out our <clears throat> Patreon page. Five bucks a month, which works out at like £3.70 something if you're in the UK. 
Um, we give you four extra podcasts a month, all over an hour long. And we're launching a forum and generally trying to build like a cinematalist community kind of thing. So if you'd like to get on board with that, if you really enjoy <laughs> our content, please do consider donating to us. We do some really great stuff, we promise. And uh, yeah, that's right about it. Anything else to say, matey? So as always, thank you very much for listening, guys. And if you're interested in my write-ups, there's a link to my blog, the Wacko Jacko blog on the Cinementalist website. And if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm Liam at the movies, at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Uh, we usually have a nice little film Twitter community going on there if you'd like to you get involved with that and, or, you know, just sort of whatever. <laughs> you don't have to. It's just, it's just a humble suggestion. But, yeah, if you don't see me... If you don't see, if I don't see you, if we don't see you on the premium, we'll catch you next Not time. Not if I see you first. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, guys. I uh, hope to see you on the premium. If not, free one next week. Thank you very much.